0: finished with Mythopoeia by J.R.R. Tolkien, it's on to something which I feel everyone is aware of, if not the entire thing, then of course the first few lines, and that is the Soliloquy of Hamlet in Hamlet by Shakespeare. And I was trying to decide how I wanted to do these little epithets. excerpts from these longer poems, in this case a play, and I thought that it was very important to get a very general context um, that this is placed in. And so I will give my own understanding from memory of what is kind of going on with Hamlet when he when he speaks to Ophelia in this way. So, we have Hamlet, he is a prince. And he comes home from university because he's received word that his father has died, his father the king. And when he gets there, he finds that his uncle has married his his mother. And now his uncle is the king. And this gets into um, an allusion to the Levitical laws. uh, One which, which says that the brother of a man is required to marry that man's widow if that man dies. And there are good and bad reasons for that law, especially at the time. But topic for another time. Um, So Hamlet comes back, he finds this situation, and he is wandering around the castle, and these two guards come to Hamlet and say, we have seen a ghost of the deceased king, and they bring him to this ghost, and this ghost of the king, of Hamlet's father, tells Hamlet, that he was not, that he did not, in fact, die naturally. That it was, in fact, his brother, Hamlet's uncle, who murdered the king to steal the throne and marry his mother. And so, Hamlet takes this as his father, But he obviously wonders if this was an illusion in some way. And so he has this task given by his deceased father, the ghost of his deceased father. But he also knows that there are fundamental natural laws which Hamlet feels to which hamlet feels that he would be breaking if he does kill his uncle. And so in this this soliloquy we find hamlet very torn between duty to his father, duty to a sense of justice, and on the other hand the necessary breaking of some pretty fundamental natural laws. And Hamlet is holding all of this conflict in his own head. I don't... From what I can recall, there's not anyone in this story which Hamlet can be honest with about his intentions. And Ophelia is a... I'm not sure, someone in court, a young lady who is obviously into Hamlet. And so Ophelia is a person that Hamlet can feel like he can express himself to, but he has to do it in a way that's so ambiguous that she doesn't actually know what he's talking about or or referring to. And something that's also interesting is that we... See that Hamlet in this soliloquy is talking about grand, just grand narratives about about existence, about morality, about the afterlife. And so this comes as a way for Hamlet to express himself, to put into words the conflict that is going on in, in his head but putting it in such a broad scope and such a generalization that it can really be applied to almost anything that affects our sense of existence, sense of morality, sense of immortality, and ultimate justice. And we also see that there's a lot of like pseudo-philosophical language in here. And I think it's important to be aware that Hamlet's coming from the university. And so he's been learning about these highfalutin concepts. Um, and he's he also has this kind of wishy-washy faith in God. But he's also trying to consider that in this soliloquy. I think that's enough of that. So, on to the recitation, and I hope you enjoy it. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether tis nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, or to take arms against a sea of troubles and, by opposing, end them, to die to sleep no more, and by a sleep to say we end the heartache and the thousand natural shocks that flesh is heir to. 'Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished, to die, to sleep, to sleep, perchance to dream, aye, there's the rub, for in that sleep of death what dreams may come when we have shuffled off this mortal coil must give us pause. There's the respect that makes calamity of so long life. For who would bear the whips and scorns of time, the oppressor's wrong, the proud man's contumely, the pangs of despised love, the law's delay, the insolence of office and the spurns that patient merit of the unworthy takes, when he himself might his quietus make by a bare bodkin? Who would fardels bear? to grunt and sweat under a weary life, but that the dread of something after death, that undiscovered country from whose bourn no traveler returns, puzzles the will, and makes us rather bear those ills we have than fly to those we know not of. Thus conscience does make cowards of us all, and thus the native hue of resolution is sickled over with the pale cast of thought and enterprise of great pith and moment. With this regard, our currents turn awry and lose the name of action.